You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. Today's episode is with special guest Jenny Diamond. We're talking about return to school. I'm just going to do a little bio on Jenny and then uh, and then we'll kind of dig into it. So Jenny Diamond is an occupational therapist and certified personal trainer. She is the director of occupational therapy services at the Neurology Center of Toronto. At the Neurology Center, Jenny manages a team of therapists and provides treatment to patients who have sustained one or more concussions. Jenny is passionate about concussion prevention, education and management. For more information, you can visit uh, www.jennydiamondhealth.com. Uh, and or http www.neurologycentertoronto. Uh, you can check out Jenny's Instagram accounts at Jenny Diamond Health and at the dot concussion dot OTs. Check it out. Is that what you're joining me on? Are you on at concussion or at I'm concussion on the at concussion OTs? Yeah. Nice, nice. Right on. So you can click on her profile if you're watching us live. Uh, we are doing this live. So Jenny, welcome again. This Thank is our you. Second, this is our second episode. We've done one previously on return to work. So if you haven't checked that out and you're interested in learning how to get back to the workplace, check that one out. Today, we are talking about getting back to school. Anything else you want to add on your background or bio that people should know about you before we get going? Um, I think that's good. I, I work as the director of occupational therapy services at the Neurology Center of Toronto. And um, the majority of my practice is working with individuals who've had a concussion and or have persistent concussion symptoms. Um, and I work a little bit also with people with chronic headache issues. So that's, that's all about me. And yeah. Is your practice mostly adults or kids or mixed? It's both. It's both. I'd say we, we see definitely majority adults, but we see kids too, any age. And um, we have a team of five OTs, including myself now. So it's definitely been growing. Oh. I was I was the first one there and um, started up the program there. And since then, we've just been growing more and more and developing our program. And it's it's been fun. Good. I guess that shows the need for the program, right? Um, you know, as the demand grows, you need more staff to do it. So good for you. That's awesome. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, let's dive into the topic. So we'll talk first. I think the way that I outlined this is we'll talk about acute, uh, and kind of how we go through that, what time type of accommodations we might want to include, what the stepwise process is, uh, when someone should try to go back or maybe when they should hold back that type of stuff. And then we'll get into persistent symptoms, which I think is a, a, a difficult um, topic for many if they've been off for a while, how do they get you know back into the swing of things even like you know grade school, high school, but also into the university ages where, you know, there's obviously a lot more independence and the subject matter is a lot more difficult. And, you know, it's, it's, um, there's a lot on the line with, you know, costs and tuition and things like that. So I think that'll be the way that we frame it up. And then if anyone has questions that's watching live on Instagram, uh, feel free to type them into the chat. And if we have time, we can kind of scroll through those and, um, and, you know, have those types of questions involved as well, which is one of the benefits about doing it live. Uh, okay, cool. So let's dive in. So, um, now, in terms of, of return to school from an acute standpoint, do you typically wait until asymptomatic status, meaning that the symptoms have gone away, or kind of what's your way of, of doing that? Because I know there's some debate and controversy around that. But. There absolutely is, um, and it's a really great question. So our approach is, especially being an OT, O occupational therapists are always focused on meaningful activities and can you do your daily activities? And so as an OT, our focus is a little bit more on activity tolerance rather than symptoms. So of course, you know, if someone's feeling really sick and, and symptomatic, I mean, they're probably not going to be able to do much of their activities anyways. And so that sort of gets covered. Um, and, and they'll, of course, know they, they need to rest and, and they'll have to rest. Um, but what we usually do is focus on activity tolerance. So in terms of sending someone back to school, um, we're always going to follow a stepwise process where we make sure that they can tolerate a certain amount of activity first. And once they make it to that stage, they can move to the next. Um, for, for anyone really listening who 
Uh, I mean, working with a healthcare provider who can come up with an individualized program for you is the best possible option. If you don't have access to that option or you're waiting for an appointment, there are return to school guidelines. Parachute Canada, for example, has these guidelines. So there's a bunch of them online. If you just Google concussion return to school guidelines, I, I don't know, um, Dr. Marshall, what would be your go-to return to school resource? Use Parachute or do you have uh, we, we typically just use the standard um, stuff from from Berlin, which is, a, you know, a four stage return, which I think is mm -hmm. similar kind of across the board. They have, you know, it's a very similar process through most yeah. guidelines. They're, they're all quite similar. They all encompass the same steps, which really is start with rest, then some basic activities at home, then some school related activities at home, and then getting into a graded return in school. And so you can you can find one of those strategies that breaks it down and it gives you a nice guideline. Um, but of course, within that, there's a lot of individualization that has to occur. And so um, whether or not you send someone back with symptoms, it's really, if you're managing this on your own, it, it's a little trickier. If you have a healthcare provider, um, you can individualize this. But um, what I will say is just because someone has symptoms doesn't mean I won't send them back. Now for the um healthcare providers out there how or what do you look at so those that um have a healthcare provider that's fine they can lean on them but what about the healthcare providers that are you know unsure as to what to do absolutely so what i like to do is um I like to establish two parameters and then compare them and so and it's similar for return to work so um if the goal is to get back to school i'll preface this with I'm never going to send someone back to full-time school after a concussion. It's just not likely to be as successful. I'm always going to send them back part-time first, even if it's part-time for a week, and then they want to go right up to full-time. Fine, I, I'm working with the individual, but I will never send them back to just a full week. Um, and so always what you want to establish is what is the first step to going back? So am I going to send them back for one class two days a week or two classes three days a week and whatever that realistic goal is that you come up with based on the student based on um, their current activity tolerance their symptoms what grade they're in or if they're in university etc once you establish that goal then you have to look at their current activity tolerance so these are the two parameters the first being what is the goal of what do you want to bring them back to? And then what is their current tolerance for these activities right now from home? And then what you want to do is you want to compare the two and you want to make sure that their tolerance for these activities at home is equal to or greater than what the goal is that you're working towards achieving. And so I'll, I'll just give you an example of that. If they need to be able to tolerate uh, three hours of in-person classes, um, well, can they from home at minimum do three or maybe even three and a half or four hours of, you know, listening to YouTube lectures on certain topics and taking notes or, you know, some of the, the school like strategies that they would have to do. Mm. And you do that even in the acute stage, even if they're, you know, they've been off school for a couple of days and they're starting to feel better. Would you even do that? So define a cute stage, define like what, what timeline are you thinking here? Let's say that they're, they're five or six days out from their injury. Okay, so five or six days out from their injury. I mean, it depends on their feeling. Some people feel 100% fine five to six days out from their injury. Let's say someone, again, is it, do they have symptoms or they have no symptoms? Let's say they have no symptoms. They're doing things at home. They're, you know, maybe eating dinner with their family, having conversations, they're on the computer, no issues. Great. I would send them back probably for a half day just to, to be safe. And then if, again, everything's fine, cool, we can ramp it up. Mm -hmm. um, versus if they're struggling with their symptoms, then again, we're, we're managing, you know, where are they at? So I think, you know, whether or not you do this in the acute stage, it's not to me so relevant how far after their concussion they are. For me, it's more of what are their symptoms like? And, and more importantly, what is their activity tolerance like? Because you get people who are one, two, three years out from their injury and they have terrible activity tolerance, or I shouldn't say terrible, but more like severely limited mm. um, activity tolerance. And then you have people who had their injury a week ago and they're a little bit more fortunate and, and they're totally fine and their symptoms go away. So I would say it's definitely more individualized and, and not so based on the acute versus long-term stage. I don't know. Uh, I'm curious what your take is on that and how you would approach that. Well, I mean, I don't, um, um, I don't take too, too much 
um, I guess I don't get too concerned about it. I just, I try it and see how they do. Like I tend to do like a trial and error type approach more so. So I, um, I, I, I kind of follow, you know, like what it, what, what's in Berlin is, you know, if you can tolerate 45 minutes of at home activity without increasing your symptoms. So I usually use that as, as my way of dictating. So if you have symptoms that that's not as concerning, it's more concerning if, if when you do cognitive based activity, those symptoms increase to a significant degree, I kind of use it like the treadmill test scenario yes. where if you have a increase of three or more symptoms, you know, from, from your starting point, then I would consider that to be a significant increase. If you don't have a significant increase, then, and you can tolerate 45 minutes of doing homework at home, then the next step I say, try a half day, right? Now, if you're able to make it through a half day, great. Then we can keep going with that and try to push you to a full day, especially early on in the recovery. I find that, you know, I just kind of rip the bandaid off and see what happens. And if they go and they're like, oh no, half day was too much. Then we can look at, okay, you know, where are some accommodations and, you know, do we reduce the time here? Uh, you mm -hmm. know, that type of thing. So I take more of a trial and error type approach, I guess, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, interesting. And there's no real wrong answer. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you're not hurting your brain unless you get an actual re-injury. It's just mm -hmm. not going to be helpful to your recovery if you're experiencing all these symptoms. And of course it's not good for your quality of life. Um, I think, you know, perhaps maybe my, my bias as a healthcare provider is working with patients who do struggle through these returns. And because those are the patients who typically then need help and need therapy support. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's probably why I tend to go with a more conservative approach and take things slowly because mm -hmm. um, I usually say, you know, your body will know and you will know if this feels easy and you're good to go. So we can always ramp it up faster, but I usually do try and start with a more conservative approach and prepare them a little bit at home first. Hmm. It's just interesting, like two, two differing approaches on it. Cause I'm more of like a, let's, you know, throw you in and see where you, you know, sink or swim type of thing. And if you, if you have trouble, then we can figure something out. Um, but I mean, you never know, I could be doing some sort of, of harm with that in terms of, um, you know, just that sense of failure, I guess, where if they do go back and they do have that, you know, oh, I didn't, I wasn't able to do it. And maybe that creates more problems just, you know, because of that, that mm -hmm. kind of letdown. But um, I, I don't know, like a lot, most of the patients I found have been able to tolerate, you know, the half days and, and the progression. If you, if you're there in the acute stages, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. like that it's, it's when the PCS stage hits that that's, that that's tough. Do you, do you typically give accommodations like for a patient, like, let's say you want them to go to three hours of class, but you, you know, you give them breaks in between or, you know, what type of accommodations do you typically, I guess it's always patient dependent, but are there ones that you seem to provide more so than others? Absolutely. Yeah. So accommodations are, are key. Um, if you're someone who's listening to this, who's recovering from a concussion, or if you're a healthcare provider working with your patients to help them get back to school, you're definitely going to want to look at a list of accommodations and, or if you're the patient speak to your healthcare provider about those options. Um, it's super individualized, but the ones that I tend to use pretty much across the board for most are um, extensions on any assignments as appropriate. Um, same thing with um, removing any testing for the time being until we know that they can manage school on its own without testing. Um, often, depending on their level of schooling, um, often I'll ask for like a note taker so that during class they don't have to listen and take notes. They can just focus on listening, being there, taking in the auditory and, and visual stimuli and not adding another layer to that. Um, so getting them notes either from a note taker or, or uh, from the teacher. Um, so those ones, and then depending on the individual, again, I, I'd say like majority of my patients I work with are in the more persistent concussion symptom category. So they do often need more supports, more accommodations. So something that I often would recommend, especially if they are struggling a little bit more, um, is breaks between classes. So Sometimes that means leaving class just even like 10 minutes early to get some quiet time between classes before the hallways get really busy um, or to, to go and take, you know, a, a good quiet rest break. Um, and then I think those are the main ones. Um, 
it's interesting because virtual schooling has changed this a little bit. So mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of other accommodations I recommend for virtual school, like such as um, keeping your own video off so you don't feel like you have to stare at the screen and you can just listen rather than look in, in terms of screen time um, or like asking your teacher, getting printouts of the slides for the lectures ahead of time instead of um, seeing them live on, on the computer screen. Um, so those are some of the the more common virtual ones I recommend and I think there, there's probably a few I'm missing but those are the ones that stand out to me off the top of my head as some of the the key ones that I always recommend. Do you think um too many like I know some people that there's so many different accommodations they provide you got kids wearing sunglasses and hats and you know everything do you think that too many accommodations can be like almost a harmful thing? I mean to an extent of course I think it, it really depends how much the kid needs them and how much the accommodations help them do their daily activities and improve their quality of life. Because, you know, there's always this, this debate over, let's talk about, you know, for example, using sunglasses and earplugs. And like, often I get this patient, you know, especially when I was working more in person, this patient who comes in with, you know, sunglasses on, hat over their head, earplugs in, they're like blocking everything out. And our goal long-term is to work on getting rid of all of that. And so, you know, that is the long-term goal. However, when you think of someone um, in school or even in a workplace or out in the community, um, if wearing sunglasses helps them stay in school for a full day instead of a half day, well, that's huge for their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's to an extent and, um, I, I would say, you know, yes, like there is an element of, of too many accommodations playing into, I mean, we can even take it a step further and, and playing into, you know, the psyche of identifying as someone who is um, so needing accommodations and is so injured and then, you know, identifying with that persona and, and that can be dangerous in itself um, for the individual rather than trying to identify with, you know, I'm healing, I'm improving, I'm getting better, I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely a big psychological element to that, but I would say when I break it down, you know, I do tend to err on the side of as many accommodations as needed that would help someone perform better in their daily life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I typically go with the, uh, again, my trial and error approach. I typically go with a, you know, okay, you can tolerate 45 minutes of home activity. Let's try a half day of school. And my typical accommodations are, no tests, no homework, no gym, no recess. And mm -hmm. that's kind of my baseline. Um, and maybe I'll throw in a note taker depending on their age, right? Like mm -hmm. if they're in grade four, they're not taking notes yeah. anyway. So I just go, you know, I just don't want them engaging in physical activity or playing, you know, kickball at recess and getting a ball in the head. So exactly. I try to just, you know, limit their chance of getting another hit, but Mm -hmm. no tests, no homework. So they don't, they're just going there to just be there. And in that environment, I think of it more of like auditory and visual stimulation, as you said, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, peer interaction and seeing how they feel. And if they feel okay with that, then I'll try to push the time on that. But if they have issues, right, where, well, the lights are too bright or, and then I, okay, now I'll say, okay, what if we were to, you know, add some accommodations in, you know, kind of as yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I'm hesitant to like add too many accommodations up front because then, like you said, patients can identify with that. And that almost creates like almost like a sickness behavior sometimes mm -hmm. where we're, we're afraid to, you know, um, to get out there and do things. It's like this learned helplessness, right? Where you mm -hmm. identify as not being able to do things that you previously mm -hmm. could do. So I a hundred percent agree with you. I think, you know, giving the least amount of possible accommodations needed now, depending on the person and their stage of recovery, that list still might be big. Mm -hmm. Um, but going on the, the side of, okay, let's do, let's do less and then adjust as needed is, is huge. And I do want to emphasize also the no recess, no gym, cause that's, that's really important too. And I, I didn't mention that initially, but thank you for bringing that one up because that's just a safety thing. Like we just mm -hmm. want to avoid any second impact syndrome and, yeah. and risk of a re-injury. Yeah. Are there any, um, are there any subjects that you've heard your patients describe as being more difficult to tolerate than others? So you know what's funny? It it's it changes a lot. It's very individual. So usually um, when I'm recommending some which classes to go back to school with, I usually have people go back to the class that they either find the easiest or that they enjoy the most. Mm. Because also if they're happier, they're gonna feel better. 
That's if true. they, right, if, if they find something easy, for some people, that's math. For some people, math would be the last thing they want to do, right? So it really depends. Um, and then also, you sort of have to balance it with, you know, which classes are the most important. So, you know, if someone um, needs certain prerequisites, prerequisite courses to continue on to the next grade and English is one of them but art class is not well you know even if they like art the most it's probably more important for them to to complete English and not do art so it's a little bit of balancing I'd say those two things like what are the key classes that are the most important for them to go back to and then also what comes easiest to them what will be what will be the most successful, the most positive experience for them? And once we've nailed that, let's add in the next piece. Right. I think that's a great tip. Like I've never even thought of it like that. Um, I try to, I try to balance a schedule, particularly if it's a high school person, let's say they have, you know, a couple of periods before lunch and a couple of periods after, you know, if I'm going to send you back to a half day, generally I'll say, well, you know, you have a spare in the afternoon, like that doesn't really count. But if they also have you know, like music class, I'm like, I don't want them sitting there like, you know, blowing hard on some sort of wind instrument or something. Let's, you know, or even, even the noise aspect of that, let's try to find, you know, let's try to find a different class for you. Or if they have gym on one of those periods, um, that doesn't really make sense either. Right. So I just, that's as far as I accommodate, but I like the idea of saying, let's, let's, what, what class is your favorite? And let's start there because then if they're interested in the subject matter, they might even just lose themselves in that and be like, actually, I was fine with that. Okay, great. Now they've proven to themselves that they can do it. Right. And, and then away we go. I think that's a great, that's a great tip. I'm going to steal that for sure. Yeah, I hope you do. And it's interesting. Uh, I've definitely had some patients come back and say, oh yeah, like, um, you know, French is easy, but geography, I get the worst headache. And so mm. it's like, well, same amount of time, like you're in class, it's the same environment, but it's a different subject and right. it's super relevant, right? It's a different level of, of cognitive focus, depending on how challenging something is for you. Now this, I just thought of this idea, but do you think that is somehow related to, you know, humans tend to enjoy things we're good at. That's just the nature of things. We really shy away from things we're bad at. We tend to gravitate towards things we're good at or things that come naturally to us. Do you think that maybe one of the reasons that those classes are A, enjoyable and B, easier for some people is that they've developed the neural connections for that particular subject matter? And then after a concussion, they have more reserve capacity for those subjects? That is so interesting. Huh? Yeah, that is that? really, that's really interesting. I mean, look, I, I don't see why, why not. It's definitely possible. And, you know, when you think about how our brain responds in a concussion and that brain energy reserve and how, you know, the, like our, our brain is reserving energy for our most basic functions, keeping us alive for, for supplying all our organs and, and keeping that all going and the extra energy that remains. I mean, it's probably for a lot of these functions that maybe aren't as uh, ingrained within us. And so, yeah, I'm sure there's, there's something to be said about that. I think that's a good research study. If anyone's yeah. listening that wants to take, take that one on, I think that'd be an interesting one. You could probably do it with like an fMRI or something. If you get them doing subject matters that they enjoy, you could see the level, you know, I don't know. It's interesting, but we've seen this before. I've seen it in, um, you know, let's say reaction time studies where they show that the non-dominant hand is you know still showing deficits when the dominant hand is returned right. now that could be something to do with you know just reserve capacity around that area you have more neural connections for the dominant hand and therefore even if you have dysfunction you're still you still have enough connections built that it's almost imperceivable uh, but on the non-dominant hands, you know, maybe now it starts to show. And I'm just, I just thought that right now, but. Anyway. Yeah. And I, I think you could even take that a step further to, to any injury or illness, right? It's like, if you have a, a higher capacity for something that are in higher neural connection, stronger mm -hmm. neural connections for a certain activity, even if you're sick, regardless of what it is, you're still going to perform better during your illness compared to someone who doesn't have the same strong neural connections for that specific mm -hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, it definitely makes sense. Um, and here's, here's another one for you. Do you allow for return to sport prior to return to school? I mean, like in a concurrent setting, I don't mean full return, but I mean, in a concurrent setting, how do you, how do you address that when you have somebody that. This is sports? a, this is a great question, especially because there is so much confounding information on this. Like if you look at even the return to sport and the return to school guidelines. I mean, some of them say, you know, um, 
don't even start your return to sport guidelines until you're back at school full time. And, and really the overarching idea is, you know, return to learn first, return to school first, then return to sport. Um, however, we know it is so important to start on a low to moderate intensity exercise program as soon as you can after one to two days of, of recovery. So, and we know that that's been shown to improve outcomes after concussion and speed up recovery times in the, in the research. So it's, I, I think there needs to be some changes actually to the guidelines around that because I do think it's not clear right now and it's actually quite confusing. Um, so my approach though is, and, and I guess the real differentiating factor should be that, you know, physical activity is different than sports. So the idea being, you know, playing sports, playing on a sports team, two things. One is, of course, there's a, a risk of re-injury. And, you know, that's something you always want to get medical clearance by your physician or your primary care provider for um, before you go back to any, any activities with a risk of, of contact and re-injury. Um, but then there's also the concept that, you know, if, if you think about playing sports, so actually, let's, let's take it from this angle. If you think about school and all the cognitive demands of school involved, you know, maybe you're sitting at a desk and you're focusing and you're processing and you're making these reflections and insights. Um, so that's what you do in a school setting. And then in a sports setting, you're doing the same thing on the field. If you're playing soccer, you know, you're, you're using your spatial system, you're using your vestibular system, you're looking around you, you're processing, you're thinking, planning your next move, uh, all of that in combination with physical activity and physical challenges. And so in theory, you know, playing sports is a lot more challenging in some ways than, um, than just cognitive function on its own in terms of all the different um, systems that are being recruited to, to support you and help you and in terms of and how your symptoms might respond. So that's sort of one perspective that I take on it in terms of why you should go back to school first before sport. I mean, there's also the idea that you know, priorities and, and balancing your energy. And we want to make sure kids are in school and they're doing that before they're going back to their sports teams. And if they only have the energy for one or the other, well, you know, let's make sure they're not behind in their learning. Um, so I guess to summarize all of that, what I would say is, you know, starting from the very beginning with a low to moderate exercise program, um, ideally created by your healthcare provider, um, nothing with a risk of falling or, or re-injury and slowly grading it up as per your symptom tolerance, um, and then not going back to team sports until you're tolerating full-time school. Mm -hmm. I will add, you know, one sort of caveat to that in that, like, again, it's quality of life. Like we want these kids to feel good and be happy. And um, if someone's favorite thing in the world is playing on their sports team and they can do that in a setting where there's no contact um, and they're here, you know, with this concussion, their life is stressful. It's really challenging now. They have to plan out all these things for getting back to school and planning out their rest breaks. And it's just this big headache and they can't socialize. And the one thing that makes them really, really happy is playing on their sports team and they can do it safely. Well, that's really valuable. And, mm -hmm. you know, that like, there's so much to be said about, you know, keeping people happy and improving their quality of life to ultimately help get them better and improve their self-efficacy and um, perceived capability and, and success. Mm -hmm. We used to take like, well, the way we used to do it is we used to do uh, you know, return to learn, then return to sport, because the, you know, the original kind of literature on this, not even original, but just, you know, you know, post Berlin, it was, that's kind of what the consensus was, is like, do not start return to sport until you return to school. But then over the years, the amount of data coming out on, on early exercise and its benefits in recovery, we actually now run them concurrently, but we don't allow for a full return to sport unless we have a full return to school. So kind of the way we juggle it is, you know, within the first five days, we're putting you on a treadmill, whether you like it or not. And that's, that's the, that's the first step you're doing your return to learn stuff. You may be still at home doing stuff. You may be, but if you're still symptomatic, you know, at day four to five, like we're putting you on the treadmill to try and get that kick started, And you know, you may be in half days of school already, you may be in full days of school already, we don't know, but we're kind of managing them almost as independent events. And then if you're able to pass the treadmill test, well, 
the next stage is you're allowed to return to a non-contact activity. So if you're able to go and practice with your soccer team and you can just do, you know, individual dribbling uh, drills with the, with the ball, you can take some shots on that. You can jog around the field. You can interact and socialize with your teammates. You know, you're part of the team still, which I think, like you said, it's kind of a psychological boost as well. If people enjoy it, and you're still not putting yourself at risk, but you're still getting physical activity, which is beneficial for recovery. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm ready. Like I'm having no symptoms at practice, but I'm still having trouble with, you know, school. You say, okay, but that's still something. So we can't clear you to fully return because you're still having some sort of issues, right? The only way you go back to sport is if you are issue free in terms of full return. So that's kind of the cutoff point. It's like, we'll let you do non-contact practice forever. You know, mm-hmm. but until you're able to fully establish yourself in school with no issues, and then we then will run you through full physical exertion testing, baseline retesting if we have the info and all that to make the final sport decision. But mm-hmm. we don't even do that until you're back in full school. So that's kind of how we've juggled it. But it's interesting, even over the past couple of years, we've completely changed. Our it's changed a lot like, the last yeah. couple of years. Yeah. And, and it's interesting how, you know, things really are changing quickly year to year. And I think, you know, it's such a good perspective the way you outline that because we want kids doing the physical activity anyway. So why not have them do it in the sport they enjoy in a social setting? I mean, again, if they can tolerate it, if it feels mm-hmm. good. Um, but I think that's actually, you know, the absolute way to do it is if they can tolerate it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, switch gears now to PCS. So PCS, for those who don't know, is persistent concussion symptoms, it used to be called post-concussion syndrome. These are the people that have symptoms for months and months or years and years. And, you know, how do we, obviously with school, kids are generally, you know, just a couple months out or even a couple weeks out and still not able to get back. How do you change your approach on this? How do you kind of change how you look at this? Do you include, you know, cognitive assessments in this? Do you still take it by a symptom-based approach? Like, how does that change for you typically? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the bigger thing is just, um, in most cases, moving a little bit more slowly with it. Um, Chances are if they have persistent concussion symptoms, they probably tried going back to school. It probably wasn't successful. So you know that you have to be pretty careful and individualized in your approach. Um, Whether or not I do a cognitive assessment, it just depends on on their abilities. So um, if they're complaining of no cognitive symptoms, but they're just getting, you know, really bad headaches when they are doing any thinking tasks or looking at a computer screen, um, then I'm not, I'm probably not going to focus on doing a cognitive assessment. I'd rather put our time towards building up a symptom threshold and and tolerance for their activities. Um, So I don't know how much it really differs compared to acute in terms of my approach. I would say it's fairly similar. I might, it's just more in terms of the the types of profiles I see, these types of patients, they tend to need a little more support and a little more accommodation. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought of something else when you were saying that how much, um, like I, I, I find this too, is when people are going back to school and, you know, they'll start to get a headache later in the day. And a lot of people will attribute that to cognitive loading. Um, and I kind of take a different approach. I say, well, it could be a variety of things, right? It could be ocular motor. It could be neck and postural, right? Like if you have neck dysfunction from your injury and now you're sitting in class, you know, with that for an extended period of time. Like I just thought of it now, cause I'm sitting here kind of in a slow position. I just sat up a little straighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> my mid, my mid back starts to hurt. I'm starting to get, you know, pressure on my neck and you get that anterior head carriage and stuff. And like, yeah, you know, a lot of these people might have other dysfunctions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not necessarily, you know, cognitive yeah, based. that's a great point. I think actually that's where, I mean, as any healthcare provider, I think that's important, but I think as OTs, we do have a unique lens in that we do have a little bit of expertise in all of these domains. We have, of course, the areas that we uh, focus on a little bit more, which tends to be um, return to activities, um, energy and fatigue management, cognitive strategies, and sleep, Um, but we do have expertise in, in all of these domains. And so my role, at least, in, and when I work with my patients, I'm looking at all those factors. And so I'm saying, okay, you know, you're having headaches from screen time. Well, what's the underlying issue and what things do we need to fix? So 
is it the screen or is it the ergonomics that needs to be improved? And, and so we're going through, you know, all of these things. Um, have you been assessed by a chiropractor or physio? You know, have they checked out your neck? Have they checked out your shoulders? Um, do we know if it's coming from tension or is it purely, have you, have you seen your optometrist? Like when was the last time you've had your prescription checked? Sometimes patients just haven't gone back in three or four years and they need their prescription updated. So really looking at all the different factors that could be playing a role into this symptom, like you said. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, on that now, if I'm a parent, what advice would you have for a parent that has a child in, let's say, you know, grade school to high school that's, you know, struggling to get back, you know, what type of resources would you have them look into? What type of, um, you know, types of practitioners would you recommend they maybe get in touch with, um, mm -hmm. you know, or things that they try to do to kind of pace themselves back in if they mm -hmm. didn't have access to care at all? So, so not practitioners then you mean, so more just like resources or? Well, both, both. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, like what type of thing would you look for with a practitioner? What type of things could you be doing on your own if you didn't have Absolutely. access to that? Uh, what type of resources might be available to you? Absolutely. So, I mean, of course, my bias is I am an occupational therapist and I understand the profession of OT quite well. And um, I feel that it plays a really important role in concussion rehabilitation and particularly in return to activities, because that really is what OTs um, hone in on with their patients. So what I would say is that if, if someone's struggling with return to school, that is an immediate referral to an occupational therapist if you have the resources. Um, OTs, and, and we actually, we mentioned this in our last podcast, we, we don't specialize. So you don't have to see necessarily an OT who specializes in concussion because all OTs are going to have the same training and resources to help you be successful. Um, however, I would say, you know, working with an occupational therapist who does have their practice in concussion, they very likely will have had more experience, more training, have taken more specific courses and workshops in that area. So it's probably a good idea to see someone who, who works at a clinic that um, is focused on concussion or their, their own practices focused in concussion. Um, so that's one thing in terms of healthcare providers. Um, I definitely would also recommend seeing a chiropractor or a physio um, just to rule out any of the physical issues that could be happening that are leading to symptoms because so many of my patients, it's, it's in their neck. And what, you know, once they work through that, those neck issues um, with their physio or their chiro, so many of their symptoms are improved. And so, you know, it's just a nice thing to get assessed and check off. And, and, you know, if your neck is fine and your body is fine and the physio says, you know what, you seem pretty good, um, then that's great. And that's, that's good to know as well. It's just good information. Um, so for me, my, my typical referrals are um, OT, so occupational therapy, um, physio or chiro for the physical aspects, and then um, psychotherapy. And that, you know, it, again, it's, it's a bit of balancing resources, both financially and in terms of time and energy. Um, but the psychotherapy piece for a lot of a lot of kids is huge because it is so challenging for them. Um, those are typically my, my three referrals and then possibly to a speech language pathologist as well if they're having persistent language or communication issues. Um, and then possibly to optometry as well. Um, so those are, my, those are my main referrals. And then in terms of resources, actually um, Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Hospital has a really great resource called, I think it's called School First. And it's like this whole handbook that breaks down so much detail of how to go back to school. So if you're someone who um, does want to do a bit of research into this for your kids, if, if you're a parent listening, check out that resource because it really breaks down everything from both like strategies and accommodations that can be used to like even how to communicate with schools and who should be involved and asking if a school has a concussion policy and who runs it and all the language you have to use. So that's a really great resource. Um, and then I would say uh, two other handbooks I really love are the Sunnybrook handbook on concussion, um, as well as also, again, the Holland Bloorview handbook. And both of those provide some strategies for um, just basic symptom management and helping you get back to activities. Yeah, I think that's all. That's all great. I think you nailed that um, question. Now, getting into university students now, and I come across a lot of these that may be off school or have put their degree on hold for the time being, and now they want to go back. And usually it's in the context of, okay, I've decided I'm going back in September. 
and it's now June and I'm shitting my pants <laughs> and I don't know yeah. if I'm going to be able to do it. Yeah. What, what can they do to prepare themselves for that? Absolutely. So, um, and that's actually the time of year that I, that I tend to say, you know, like even some of my patients who, um, you know, maybe they're in grade 12 and they're doing a lot better, um, things are good, but then, you know, uh, we know that next year they're going off to university. And so I usually say, you know, why don't we meet up in June or, or July and we can at least put you through some um, practice activities to make sure you can tolerate what's what's about to come up. Um, so I do think, you know, having a, a couple months to prepare before starting a new year of school is great. If you don't have a couple months, I mean, you, you do what you can, you use the time you have. Um, but in terms of what you can do, really it's simulating that school environment from home before you're actually in it. So can you get a textbook that you're going to have for even one of your actual courses? Can you locate that in advance and start, you know, practicing reading through it and taking breaks, you know, set a timer for 20 minutes, um, see how you feel after doing that a few times with some breaks in between. And if it feels good and you, your symptoms aren't getting worse, great. Let's try the same thing, but with 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So building up those kinds of activities. Similarly, the same thing for screen time. So, um, you know, even just doing writing, like doing some journaling on a computer as if you would be writing an essay, but you can, you know, write what you did that day or choose a topic that's interesting to you. So doing these simulated things depend and, and ideally having them align as close to the actual subjects you'll be taking as possible. So I've had kids look up, you know, videos on YouTube about certain topics that they'll be learning. And I have them, you know, sit there, listen to it as if it's their own lecture and take notes and then, yeah. um, you know, see how effectively they were able to do that. I think with the, like with, you know, this day and age with YouTube and stuff, I think it's so, and even if it's, you know, while screens still bother me, you know, you know, turn your screen off, just listen and, mm -hmm. and take notes because that's the pace that things are going to be going at. You can get, you know, university lectures, uh, in, in a variety of different ways on YouTube, people have published their whole thing. I mean, you can find Jordan Peterson lectures on YouTube too. You just, you know, close your screen and just write notes on a bunch of different topics. And, you know, in the field that you're interested in, you can always find something. Um, and I think that's, that's a demand. I like the idea of reading a textbook too, because studying, you know, that's going to be a big thing. So, um, you know, how do you do with all nighters? You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's something. That's something I would definitely avoid, especially during concussion recovery. I was never the all nighter person. I was the like, may my eight hours of sleep bless me for tomorrow's exam and, and save me and and let yeah. me get through it rather than cramming the night before. But yeah, I I, I was a mixture of both. But I you, yeah. could, you could frequently find me in the in in the, in the Weldon stacks at Western. Uh, nice. Well, well beyond the darkness hours. So, oh yes. Um, anything that you think we've missed, or anything you want to add before we kind of flip it over to see if there's any questions here on the live? Um, let me think. Let me just see if I had a couple notes, and I just want to make sure that I covered them. Um, I don't think so. Nothing specifically that I feel like is super important. I mean. You know, there's a whole other side of things in terms of cognitive rehab and cognitive strategies, which really plays in. And I think, you know, that could be a whole other podcast episode in terms of those kinds of strategies. Um, there's just, you know, so many to name. But I think just at least for today, recognizing that the, there are many individuals who are going to have a hard time with the cognitive aspects of return to school, and maybe they can tolerate the work and they're not getting headaches necessarily, but they're having issues with their memory. They're having issues with their planning and their organization are missing deadlines and, and then having to cram the night before. So there's a big role for OT or similarly, but, but different would be speech language pathology to work with kids to help them with those kinds of strategies as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's one question here about tinnitus. Um, I don't know if it's really on point, so I'll skip it and see if there's other. Um, we have one of our nurse practitioners from the States uh, she wrote, I think we were talking about difficult subjects. She wrote math and languages. So <laughs> that seems to be her experience. She, exactly. works, at, she works at, um, children's hospital of Philadelphia. Um, and so deals a lot, obviously with pediatric concussion, um, playing music. How long would you withhold this before clearing them to return? Mm, that's a really good question. So um, it's not so much about, you know, clearance to return. It's more just about limiting unnecessary stimuli that might provoke 
worsening of symptoms. So what I would say is if, if you're doing all your other subjects and you can tolerate all the rest of school, well, the next step is probably to add in music and see how that goes. And maybe with accommodations, maybe, you know, starting for just half of the class instead of the full class or um, using earplugs to just decrease the sound a little bit. So it might be with accommodations, but um, it's probably one of the last things to add in, especially if you're someone who is having issues with noise sensitivity. Mm -hmm. The way that I've done this in the past is I try to isolate, you know, where the issue might be. Mm -hmm. So rather than going in and playing and being with the, all the other noise, it's like, okay, we'll try playing at home for a bit and build up your tolerance to being able to play, right? Can you play for five minutes? Can you play Love for that. 10 minutes? Can you play for 15 minutes? Okay. Can you play for the entire duration of what you would need to, let's say it's 45 minutes in a class. Can you do that at home comfortably? Okay. Now, can you go and just sit in that class for five minutes, for 10 minutes and just dealing with the noise on its own, Perfectly you know, and so. now, now marry them together and see, you know, see how, see how you do. Um, that's so you use, you use the same level of detail and preparation for music class as I do for the rest of school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're, You don't use so much the guess and check method. You're like, let's be really careful and strategic with this music. Cause it's, it's gonna, be well, there's just, I think there's just so many variables, I think with music, yeah. because especially yeah. when it's, I think I'm thinking wind instruments and like, you know, increasing your intrathoracic pressure as you're breathing through like a trumpet. Um, you know, that's going to be an issue, but also then you have the elevated noise, you know, and the crowd. And I just think there's a lot of moving parts, mm -hmm. um, but, we had, a, but yeah. we had a really good comment in the chat that I just caught sight of. And um, you can even break that up in terms of, you know, if you're playing a wind instrument, not necessarily blowing into it, but just practicing the keys with your fingers and, and starting with that and right. building from there. Right. Exactly. So I think the whole thing, and I, this is like what I always try to get across to patients is like, figure out what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And then really just chunk it up. Right. And yes. I think this is kind of a concept of like cognitive behavioral therapy and that too, is like, when you look at a, a big thing that's over here, like it seems almost overwhelming, like, oh my God, I can't play in the band because I have to, there's so much going on. But what you do is you go, okay, I want to be able to play in the band, let's say in like six months. So then you kind of bring it back. Okay. What do I need to be able to do first? Well, I need to be able to play by myself. And well, you know, breathing through my instrument is tough, but I can start working on the notes and I can start, you know, you know, doing breathing exercises without the instrument and like, just really chunk it up into, into steps and gradually just add those together over time. And before you know it, within six months, you can be playing, you know, in the band. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where, you know, there's, there's, there's a quote that people underestimate, you know, what they can do in, in 10 years or something and overestimate what they can do in a year. I think that if you think about it far enough in the future, bring it back to, you know, where you are now in small pieces and then, you know, build, I think that's really the key. That is really the key to all of concussion rehab, all of to be it. honest. Yeah. All of it. Uh, let's see if there's any more. So helpful. Thank you for, thank you to both of you. Um, yep. There's the wind instrument once. Tinnitus, more info. <laughs> People really want to talk about tinnitus. Do you have an episode on tinnitus that you can refer them to? Uh, I think I do actually. Yeah. If you want to go to previous episodes, go to YouTube and look up uh, ask concussion doc, um, tinnitus or tinnitus, however you want to say it. Um, and I have some information on there. It's very, um, it, it, the problem with tinnitus is we don't really know a lot about it. I think that's really the big issue is we don't, we don't totally understand the pathophysiology of it. We don't totally understand, you know, treatments. There's some treatments with audiology where they'll use, you know, frequency stimulation to try and mimic the sound and almost kind of desensitize your brain to that sound level. So there's some evidence on that. There's some actually evidence that um, um, tendinopathy of the SEM muscle can actually cause tinnitus and actually treating the SEM, treating the upper part of the neck can actually relieve tinnitus in some patients. And so uh, that's something I always try. Um, there's some, some evidence to suggest that it could be inflammatory. And so, you know, increasing or decreasing pro-inflammatory foods and trying to really clean up your diet may have a reduction in neuroinflammation, which then can potentially, um, uh, um, alleviate that. So that's kind of the gist of it. But, um, you know, I think that you kind of go through the method and you just try to kitchen sink it because we don't necessarily know what's causing yours versus anyone else's. And so, I think the best advice is to say, eat a clean diet, get somebody to look at your neck, talk to an audiologist, 
right? Like yeah. you can't, you can't go wrong with that, with that strategy. And so probably see a, see an ENT also, right? Right. 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 ENT typically will, will look for any pathology that's there that mm-hmm. might be an issue. And then what they'll usually do if there is no pathology is send you to an audiologist anyway. So, right. but I mean, I think it's important to rule things out. So I think that's a good point you make. Mm-hmm. Um, as an OT, do you travel a lot to different schools to assist children? If so, do you experience challenges attending to the needs of your patients as you progress them through their rehabilitation? Okay, um, I'm just trying to understand how those two parts correlate. Let me just scroll back a little bit. Um, but do, do, do you travel? To so schools? I'll start with that. I don't travel to schools. I, I see patients um, virtually. So I usually see them after school, before school, or um, during school, depending on their schedule. Um, or during typical school hours during their schedule. So um, no, I don't. And then the second part of that was... Um, what was the if so? Because I could hypothesize an answer. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. It seems like they're relating it to traveling to different schools. Um, How do you stay on top of your patients' needs? Like, is this coming from maybe another health healthcare provider or OT who has trouble? You know, keep it's like a lot of travel time, or I'm not totally sure. Mm-hmm. Just Quinn. To... Quinn, can you elaborate on that? Maybe. It's also not letting me scroll up here. So, oh, there we go. Okay. So if so, do you experience challenges attending to the needs of your patients as you progress them through their rehab? Um, I'm not sure how that relates. Um, yeah. I think if you can give me a little more uh, information on that one, that would be good. They just replied again and said, I know a few OTs that have to travel for their work in rural areas. Okay. So yeah, it's it'd be challenging following up with their patients because of the wide area they have to cover. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine that would be quite challenging if you're losing time to travel time. Right. So, but that's, uh, it's definitely needed having services there, especially if people don't have access to online care. Yeah. I would think in the, in the age of zoom though, you can probably, you can probably, uh, you know, have a lot of, well, a lot of, a lot of width to your, your domain. Yeah. A lot of my, Exactly. I, I see. So at our clinic, we see people virtually all across Ontario. So I definitely, I see people in rural areas and some of them actually have to do their appointments from their doctor's office and they go there and, and use their Wi-Fi and do that. So that's hmm. an option too. Hmm. Okay. I think that's it. Everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the live and thank you for listening. Uh, Jenny Diamond, everybody. You can find her at JennyDiamondHealth.com. You can follow her on Instagram at Jenny Diamond Health. You can also follow at the concussion dot, sorry, the dot concussion dot OTs. Uh, you can also check out the Neurology Center Toronto, which has neurologists, OTs. I think you have PTs as well. Yeah, the psychotherapy. Full, psychotherapy. You got the full team. Uh, you know, really great center. So check that out if you're in the GTA and in need of some concussion help. Right on, Jenny. Thanks for joining me. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.